So we are turning again to the scripture this morning, the book of Acts. If you will follow along with me as we read from the book of Acts chapter 10. Peter went up up on on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our sermon series called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh, This has been a series about Christian leadership, uh, really leadership in our own lives and uh, leadership in our workplaces and in our homes. Um, and how the skills that we have now might not be the skills that we need to get us into that next phase of life. Uh, This sermon series has um, taken us through uh, the book of Acts, also known as Acts the Apostles, what those early followers did um, after Jesus uh, had ascended into heaven. And what we learned uh, last week was that um, the Acts 2 church grew from 120, it helps if you turn the clicker on, uh, the Acts 2 church grew from 120 to 3,000 people at the day of Pentecost. Um, This was clearly a new thing for the apostles, Um, that what got them there um, was 120, would not get them to 3,000, right? Would not take them to 6,000 and to now be um, one of the world's largest religions. This thing, uh, they were needing to adapt. They needed a transition. And what we learn is that in all of our lives, we all experience transitions, And we have an opportunity, whenever it comes to those moments of transition, we have an opportunity, a choice to make when it comes to those moments in life. Now, the analogy we've been using throughout this series is the analogy of Lewis and Clark, um, the early explorers who uh, navigated um, the Louisiana Territory. Uh, They were not only called by Thomas Jefferson to to navigate uh, the Louisiana Territory, but to also find a water route to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, What they would realize is what we know now is that there, in fact, is no water route um, from uh, the Mississippi River all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Um, But as they took their group called the Corps of Discovery uh, through the Louisiana Territory, they were traveling through the Great Plains, they had canoes, they had all the skills necessary for water navigation, and and all the while they were hoping in the back of their minds that they would find this water route, that they would find this nice and easy path. And and they had heard rumors that there was, in fact, another mountain range ahead of them, what was going to be known as the Rocky Mountains. But they had put these thoughts away. They had denied these thoughts until finally they came to a moment. They came to a pass which was called the Limhi Pass. And this was a um, a path that stood at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and, uh, And so as they stood at those foothills and they looked up at those mountains, something happened in their eyes and in their minds. Uh, the historical geographer John Logan Allen says this, that the moment atop the Limhi Pass was when the geography of hope gave way to the geography of reality. 
the geography of hope gave way to the geography of reality, that those unrealized expectations, those things in the back of their minds had given way to what was actually before them. And Lewis and Clark realized what maybe we've all come to some kind of conclusion in our life is that the skills that got us here are not likely the skills to take us there. The gifts and abilities that we've developed in order to get us to this moment in life are not maybe the gifts and abilities that will take us into that next phase in our journey. So we're kind of at that phase in our own personal life of our family at another time of transition, and we have a lot more to learn, a lot more to do. And so we're actually moving to Texas, for those of you who didn't know this morning, and we're actually heading out tomorrow morning. But this is something that we don't have a lot of context for. We have the little pieces here and there, but we're not quite sure what the whole picture is going to entail just yet. And so we've got some learning to do. Uh, We originally had this plan in mind um, back in October of last year. We knew that I had this call to ordain ministry. We knew that I had been equipped and licensed as a local pastor over the summer and that the next natural step, the next step in the process was to go to seminary. And so in our minds, it made perfect sense to just stay here, do what we were doing, kind of stay in our wheelhouse and do what we were really good at, to stay here and do ministry with you guys that we love and had great joy in and to continue doing that full-time ministry and full-time family life with us and with our kiddos and then just kind of stick seminary right on top of all of that good stuff that was happening. And that seemed like a good idea until the more and more I thought about it and prayed about it and talked through that with Andy, it just seemed less and less realistic. It seemed less comfortable and clear, and and the geography of reality just was not there. That was not a good reality for our family. And so as we were coming to this realization, we were sitting in our living room one afternoon uh, recognizing this, and out of the blue, I just said, what if what if I went to Oxford for seminary? What if we just did something completely different? And it took Andy a couple of breaths to recover from that statement. He was not expecting that. But the great thing about it is it broke the ice and it opened up a conversation because we realized that we didn't have to do things the way we had been doing them, that this new phase in life was going to and was going to require something of us that we didn't know how to do yet, and we could do something completely different. The, the options were endless. And so we started researching schools and different places we could live and, and do life with our family and continue growing in our ministry. And we landed on Perkins uh, School of Theology in Dallas. And while uh, Texas doesn't seem like a foreign country, it's certainly not Oxford, it's a foreign country to us, Okies, because uh, Andy and I have been raised here in Oklahoma. We're raising two little Okies. We've never lived outside the state lines of Oklahoma, and so it's an adventure for us. It's brand new. We have no context for it yet, and we're so excited for the journey. But we realized that there are some transitions in life that keep us in our wheelhouse. Maybe you've made a sideways move at work before, and you know that you can do it. You've got all the skills and knowledge and know-how that you need to do it. And then there are other transitions in life, maybe going to seminary, that require something else, that take you off the beaten path where the Spirit is leading in a different direction. And maybe it's not seminary for you. Maybe it's a job loss or a new job where you've got to develop new skills that you didn't need before. Maybe it's a new relationship. You've gone through a divorce or you're beginning a new relationship and you're having to learn something about yourself or learn something about a new person in your life. Or maybe you just graduated from high school and you're going off to college and mom and dad aren't going to be there to pay your bills and do your laundry anymore. That's a big skill set. 
We have these transitions in life. Our life is full of them. And we can choose one of two things. We can choose to stay in our wheelhouse and do what's comfortable, do what we know, or we can adapt. We can adapt and we can address those challenges and we can develop new skill sets that are going to bring us into a new phase in life and help us grow as individuals. And that is where Peter finds himself in the scripture that we've shared this morning. Whenever we read uh, the book of Acts, what we realize is that the apostles made a lot of adaptations. Um, that it seems like at every turn, the apostles have a new opportunity to learn something new, to adapt and to grow. Early on in the book of Acts, um, we have Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, um, post-crucifixion, ha- has now defeated death, and, and he's w- with the uh, disciples, now called the apostles, and just before Jesus ascends, he sends them um, out to do the gospel ministry that he has started, to tell the good news, and when he sends them, he, he says, now you are called to, to preach the good news in Jerusalem. Well, that made sense to the apostles. Jerusalem was the capital of the world. And he says, not only that, but you're called to go to, to Judea, the surrounding countryside. And, and, and again, the apostles thought that that made sense. This is the surrounding country. And he said, but also go to Samaria. Samaria, full of what they called half-breeds. These were hated people. They spit on the ground when they met a Samaritan. And, 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 and Jesus also said, and go to the ends of the earth. So now that this thing that had been started by Jesus was not only for a select group of people, but was for people to the ends of the earth, and the apostles made an adaptation. And then, of course, we, we remember that the apostles then received the power of the Holy Spirit. And when they received the Holy Spirit, they began to preach in the languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. And, and as people from all around came to hear this and to witness this event, Peter stood up and began to preach a message. And, and as he preached, others were convicted. And at that moment, the church grew from 120 to 3,000. And the apostles made an adaptation. And in the book of Acts, we find Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first one to die for his faith. And and we find the apostles coming to the realization that now people are dying for following Jesus. People are dying for being a witness to Christ. And now they are faced with this decision. Will we continue this ministry or will we do something different? And the apostles are left with an opportunity to adapt. And we also come um, to Saul. Saul, a, a persecutor of the church. He's the one who goes and finds followers of what was then called the way. And, and he found them and he brought them before the religious leaders so that they could be tried. And, and as Saul heads to Damascus to find more Christians, Jesus meets him on that road. This bright light shines around him and he hears those words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are crucifying. And, and Saul is left with an opportunity to adapt, and he does. And so no longer is he called Saul, a persecutor of the church, but he is Paul, a promoter of the Christian faith. And he is left with an opportunity to adapt. All of this, he does all of this. And the apostles adapt again and again and again because they have an opportunity to leave an old way of thinking for a new way of thinking. So Saul, now turned Paul, is a 
perfect representative of this new way of thinking. He and Barnabas were at the church of Antioch, and they were doing Gentile ministry. They represented this new ministry with Gentiles who were non-Jewish people, anybody who didn't practice or grew up in the Jewish tradition, which is a very large group of people in that part of the world. And so they decided there was this big conversation about whether or not you had to convert to Judaism to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas answered that no. No, you did not. That it wasn't necessary to convert. It wasn't necessary to follow all the Jewish laws and codes and to be circumcised in order to be a true follower of Christ. That you could do that without having made that decision. And you could do it faithfully and fruitfully. And then there was Peter on the other side of that conversation with James in the church in Jerusalem. And they represented the Jewish ministry, this older way of thinking. They said, yes, you do have to convert. We're Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. This is the way we've always done it. This is part of following Christ. This is what it looks like. We can't do it any way, any other way. And so there is this moment when they realize that it's not going to work anymore. And Peter has this vision in the book of Acts. So Peter has this vision to kill and eat unclean animals. Um, Luke, the writer of um, Acts, uh, calls them four-footed creatures, and, and that was code for unclean animals, reptiles and birds of the air, all these things that were unclean. Peter, up to this point, had followed what was known as the kosher laws. These were the cleanliness laws, and, and these were laws um, that were given by God to distinguish the people of Israel. To distinguish them. They were not laws in and of themselves, but they were laws so that these, these people would know themselves as different than the world around them. That was very important for them at the time because they were um, surrounded by other people practicing different ways, and so they had to distinguish themselves. And Peter has practiced these cleanliness laws up to this moment in his life every single day. And so here he has this vision from God. This sheet is lowered and on it all of these unclean animals. And the voice of God tells him to kill and eat these animals. And Peter says, I, I can't do that. I've, I, I've kept kosher. I've, I've not eaten anything unclean my entire life. And as he tells God this, he hears this voice again say to him a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. How many things have we called profane that God has called clean? How many places have we called profane that God says, I am already there? How many people have we called profane that God has already said, I am using you to witness to this person? To not call profane what God has already called clean. And in that moment, Peter is left with a challenge, an opportunity to adapt. And we call it an adaptive challenge. Um, and we know that these are different from technical challenges. A technical challenge is simply this. is a problem that can be solved with what we already know. Problems like you saw with what we already know. And, and truth be told, we do these every day. We, we have these in every moment of our life. Um, they're pretty mundane. A problem that can be solved with what you already know, a good example of that is a clogged toilet, right? Like, this is not a growing opportunity for you, you know? Like, well, maybe it is. But, you know, it's like this is not 
Um, this is not an opportunity for you to learn new information. Most of us you know, already know how to do this. We, we have all the capabilities necessary. We just you know, have to do it again. And here's the thing about a technical challenge is, is that we don't grow from them. We don't learn new information normally. And, and we solve these most every uh, moment of our day. But these are different from adaptive challenges. An adaptive challenge is a problem that can be solved with what we've yet to learn. We have to gain new information in order to do this thing. We have to read something. We have to watch something. We have to listen to someone who is more knowledgeable than we are. We have to do this because it is so far outside of our realm. An adaptive challenge is outside of our know-how. Maybe it's scary for you. Maybe it's unknown for you. And, and, and maybe you know, it might strike fear in your heart. An adaptive challenge for me is a clogged toilet, you know, um, did it again. Anyways, um, I ruined the timing. We had a joke, a bet on how well that joke would go and it went just about like that. So, um, uh, but an adaptive challenge is a challenge that you have to gain new information to in, in, to, in order to accomplish. And here's the thing about an adaptive challenge and an adaptive challenge. If we set out to accomplish it, if we set out to take on that challenge, even if we don't accomplish it, we have gained insight. We have grown in some way be- because we accepted the challenge. We accepted the opportunity in order to do that thing. And anytime we go off the beaten path, we are facing those adaptive challenges. One example is uh, from our founder of the Methodist tradition, John Wesley. He was faced with an adaptive challenge. He was an Anglican priest, and he was very, very concerned with, with, um, sorry, with order and um, doing everything the right way. He was very practical. He was very pragmatic in the way he did ministry. And he had never preached outside the pulpit of a church. He thought that church was best done in the church walls from the pulpit. In fact, he went so far as to say that it was almost a sin if the soul was saved outside of the church. A sin. He was that pragmatic about it. He was that concerned about everything doing the right, everything being done the right way, even a soul being saved. And so it was interesting when his friend George Whitfield came back from the Americas. George was an evangelist, and he had been John's junior at Oxford College. They'd been in school together, and George had gone to the Americas to preach and teach, and he had returned in about 1739, and he found these coal miners in Kingswood. And these coal miners in Kingswood were living in oppressive poverty, and their families and the coal miners were rioting because they were, um, had low wages and the food costs were rising and, and they didn't have a way of living. It just wasn't just. And so there were these riots and there were arrests being made. And George decided that they needed the good news, that they needed somebody to come and be in it with them. And he invited John to join him because he knew that John was a powerful preacher And he knew that John was a skilled organizer and that he could bring people together. And he thought, I can put that to good use. You can join me in this ministry with these coal miners in Kingswood and we can make a difference. We can build the kingdom there. But John was concerned with order and doing things the right way. And he said, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea because, see, the coal miners, they're they're not going to be in the church We're going to have to go out to the fields. We're going to go out to the open air and talk to them. I'm not comfortable with that. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. And it was really interesting because one Sunday evening, 
after talking to his brother and talking to some other society members who had encouraged him not to, to follow George either, he was preaching to a society, and he was preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons, in which Jesus is preaching in the fields to the people who would have never set foot inside the synagogue or the churches, to the people who needed to hear his good news the most. And it was at that moment that John realized that Jesus had set the precedent for open-air preaching, for field preaching, for joining the poor and being in ministry with and for the poor, that that was who he came for. That's who he came to love. And so the next morning, April 2nd, on Monday morning, he wrote this. He said, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile, like those vile, vulgar, inferior coal miners. He joined them where they were, and he stepped outside of his pulpit and his church walls, and he started preaching in the open air and in the fields and doing ministry with these coal miners, and the kingdom comes in those moments. The kingdom comes, and a movement was born because John Wesley adapted. He took his powerful preaching skills and his organizational skills, and he put them to use in a new way, re-strategized, and he did ministry in a different way than he'd ever done before, developed a new skill, and the kingdom came, and coal miners were part of it. And so our hope and prayer is that uh, at the end of this, you would feel empowered to be a leader that adapts, to be a leader that adapts. Um, for the last several weeks, uh, the staff have been reading um, a book called Canoeing the Mountains, uh, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory by Todd Bolsinger. And, and in it, uh, Todd Bolsinger outlines the three keys to adaptive leadership, um, three things that are important to know if we are going to be a leader who continually learns and continues to adapt to new situations. Uh, the first key is this, that we have to recommit to our goal. We have to recommit to that core DNA, that core part of us. Um, and if we are going to be somebody who um, adapts, we have to remember why we are adapting in the first place. Um, you might say to yourself, you know, like, I don't really have, you know, a clear set out, cut out goal. Um, you know, I just kind of have some, some things in, in my life. And, and I would challenge you and say, well, I, I think you really do have a goal. Maybe it's just kind of unvocalized. And uh, maybe a good way to get at the goal might be to practice something called the Toyota Method of the Five Whys. Um, Toyota Motor Corporation had a method of discerning problems in the manufacturing process. Um, they found these problems by simply asking the question why um, repeatedly until they found the core root of the problem. Generally, they found after five times they had found the core issue in their manufacturing process. And I would say that the same could be true in our own lives, that if we make an observation in our lives and simply ask ourselves why, we might get to the core root of who we are, that core goal, and, um, and, and, and if we'll just kind of practice this a little bit, maybe we make an observation in our lives, um, an observation of something that's happening. Um, I know Melissa and I have definitely been here, and, and maybe you are as well. Maybe you made this observation. My family and I are cranky. Anybody ever been there? You, you don't have to raise your hand or nudge anybody. But, you know, like, um, my family and I are cranky. Maybe you've made that observation um, in your life. And you might ask yourself, well, well why? Why are we cranky? And you say, we are cranky because we are busy. You know, like we are constantly going, and, um, and, and I feel like we never rest. Um, it, my family and I are busy. Well, well why, are you, why are you busy? Um, and you might kind of like put the, put the answer off. You know, you might kind of put it off and say, well, it's my children. You know, my children have practices or games most days. 
You know, and, and you might say, well, there, you know, there's just every day we're doing something. Every day we are constantly moving. Got to go to this thing and that thing. And, and, and there's just so many, you know, games or activities, something going on every day. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because my children are in many sports and extracurriculars. You know, they're just involved in so many different things. And, um, and, and well, why is that? Why is that? You know, they didn't do that on their own, right? They had some help. And so you might say, well, they're in so many different things because I want them to do what they're interested in. That's, that's good, right? I, I, I want, they said they were interested in this, and so I let them do it. They, you know, they said they wanted to do this, and so we, we signed up for it. Well, why do you want them to do what they're interested in? It's simple, right? I love them. I love them. That's, that's core to who we are, the love we have for our family, the love we have for our children. That is core. That is central to who we are. But don't we think there's a better way to show it than being busy and cranky all of our lives, being at each other's throats? So I hope and I pray as we learn how to be an adaptive leader that we would recommit to that goal, that central part of who we are. So after we've recommitted, then we have to re-strategize. Uh, if we go back to the story of Lewis and Clark, so they um, are traveling to the Pacific Ocean and they're following these water passageways and they are using canoes to travel, these hand-dug canoes. They actually used 15 different hand-dug canoes through the course of their journey, which means someone got really, really good at hand-digging out canoes. And I'm sure they had a lot of pride in those canoes as they did their travels. But when they got to the Limhi Pass and realized that they were going to have to go up a mountain and that there was not a passage through the water downhill to the Pacific Ocean, you have to wonder what that person was thinking in the back of their head. Are we going to put these canoes on our backs and travel through the mountain passes? No. It's not going to work. We can't do what we've been doing up until this point. It's not going to work. We have to come up with a new strategy. And so they had to ditch the canoes that they'd worked so hard on, that had gotten them so far. They had to leave them so that they could come up with a new strategy to get them through the treacherous mountainous passes to the Pacific Ocean, which was the goal. That was their mission. And we see this in John Wesley's story as well, that John had to re-strategize. Those coal miners were never going to walk through the doors of his church, and if they had, they probably wouldn't have received a warm welcome. And so it didn't matter how powerful of a preacher he was or how skilled of an organizer he was, those coal miners were not going to experience the love of Christ with him preaching in the pulpit. He was going to have to go out in the open air to them. He had to re-strategize. And then with Peter as well. Peter was Jewish. And he had kept kosher laws. He'd done this his whole life. He'd done amazing ministry with the Jewish community around him, the people, his family that he loved. But he saw all these Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas were doing ministry with and that he was being invited to do ministry with and that God was telling him were clean. They were not profane. And he had to do something different because what he had been doing was excluding a whole group of people that were never going to know the love of God without him breaking those kosher laws long enough to see them and to experience life with them in a new way. He had to re-strategize. And part of re-strategizing is this, that we have to listen in silence for the Holy Spirit and then move. We have to listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Todd Bolsinger says it this way. He says, don't just do something. Stand there and then do something. Listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And the third thing we need to do that is necessary in order to be an adaptive leader is to relearn again and again and again. Never be satisfied with the information that we currently have. Have a hunger and a thirst for knowledge. Uh, we learned this last week as we learned about the, ch- the church in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we learned this, that an Acts 2 church is a learning church. It is a church that continually learns. Um, we as a community of faith here know this, and that those early followers of uh, Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to this. This, this was not a hobby. Right? This was not a thing they did in their spare time. That when they got home in the evening, if they had enough time, they would do it. If they didn't feel like it, they would veg out and watch Netflix, right? Like this was not a convenience for them. This was something that they carved out time in their life in order to do. This was something they actually fashioned their life, directioned their life in order to devote themselves to learning, devote themselves to getting together, to fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to all of those things. And so if we are going to be an adaptive people, if we are going to be people who constantly grow in the face of new opportunities, we have to be a people who continually learn. So we have a couple of action steps to leave you with today. And the first is this, to be prepared to go off the beaten path, even if it means going to Texas. Because sometimes when the Spirit is leading, the Spirit is going to lead you off the beaten path. It's not always going to be in your wheelhouse where you're comfortable. Here's the thing about going off the beaten path, though. You don't do it just for the sake of going off the beaten path. This is not about being rebellious. This is about being obedient to the Word of God, to the calling that He has on your life, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's about being obedient. And so we are asked to go where the Spirit leads and the kingdom comes. And uh, the second thing um, we want to just pray for you on is, is that we would identify where God's desire and our gifts meet. Um, God has, has a desire for this world. We call it the kingdom of God, where what God wants done is actually done. And God has given you a gift and an ability to, in order to make that thing happen, right? Uh, I want to share just a a really quick example of this. Um, Some of you know a member of our church, um, Jorge Moreira. Uh, He and his wife, Holly, are members here. Here's Jorge in uh, Guatemala, actually helping dig a water well with one of our many mission teams we've sent out there. Um, He's actually getting ready to leave um, next weekend uh, to head back and, uh, and do that once more. And uh, Jorge, like many of us, uh, a few weeks ago, were watching the news uh, when the tornadoes were going through El Reno. Uh, I remember watching that happen and, and, and the disaster that it had taken effect. It uh, happened really late at night, and uh, Jorge stayed up to, to watch it. And, and, and the next morning, he, like many of us, were, were getting ready to come to church, uh, to come here. And uh, Jorge and his wife, Holly, were no different. They were getting ready that morning, and they had the news on in the background as they reported um, what had happened in El Reno, the, the, the buildings that were destroyed, the effects that had taken place. And Jorge continued to listen as the newscaster reported that the greatest need in El Reno at that time was a Spanish-to-English translator. Well, Jorge speaks Spanish and English. And at that moment, he felt the calling of the Holy Spirit. And so as he and Holly were getting ready that morning, he said, Holly, we're going to go to El Reno instead of going to church this morning. 
And, and so they did. They got in the car and they drove the 40-minute drive to El Reno, right? Definitely off the beaten path. And, and, and they arrived in El Reno and took the time to, to navigate through the debris, to, to navigate to the disaster response center until they found uh, the place where the translators were needed. And it was there that Jorge met a family of seven. Family of seven. Two, uh, a mom and a dad and five children. They lived in a trailer home in El Reno, and they were removed from their homes because it was unfit to live in, and they were scared because they couldn't understand what was happening around them because they couldn't speak the language. They were terrified until they met Jorge, who translated for them, who got them the help they needed, who could explain what was happening at that moment. And the kingdom of God came. God wanted that family to have peace at that moment. And Jorge's gifts and abilities gave them that peace. And here's the thing about it. While Jorge was in Alredo, he translated for two families. For two families. And, and after that moment, um, a, a native of El Reno, um, actually a pastor in El Reno, who um, was also a Spanish-English translator, arrived at the Disaster Response Center. And so Jorge decided that it would be better for this person to translate than for himself. And so once that translator got there, he and Holly got back in the car and they drove back to Edmond. Here's the thing about that, that whenever um, Jorge found where his gifts met God's desire, it didn't take over the rest of his life. It took two hours in order to do that thing. But in those two hours, the kingdom of God came. And so as we continue in this time of transition as a church family and our family, uh, Andy and I, we wanted to just take an opportunity to say thank you. Uh, to you, our family, to say thank you for helping us raise our children here, for being our church home, uh, for recommending me, uh, for ministry and helping me through the candidacy process and sending me on to continue my education, um, for blessing Andy and our community at One Church and believing and investing in that vision that we might create a new pe- place for new people seeking to change the world with the love of God, that you might do that work with us. Um, and thank you for just being home. You guys have been home for us, and we are so grateful and so joyful that we have had this amazing experience with you and are blessed by your presence and by your love and by your prayers, and we're uh, grateful to have shared these past five years with you. Uh, We wanted to say thank you for uh, being the church that showed us how to do church. Um, Thank you for being the church that showed us how to truly be the body of Christ, to actually be light in the darkness. Thank you for being um, our community of faith. Um, what Melissa have said and I have said uh, when it comes to exploration, when we welcome guests um, to the church, is that this is a place we would have chosen um, had we the ability to choose. And, and we just want to repeat that to you to say we feel like we have found family here. And we want to thank you so much um, for being that. Thank you to Pastor Mark and Chantel for um, taking a chance on us. Uh, for welcoming us into a community um, and to being um, a community of faith. Um, as we considered uh, the words we wanted to leave you with, um, we came across these words um, in Paul's letter to um, the church in Philippi. It's called the letter to the Philippians. Um, what we find is that uh, Philippi, the church in Philippi, was actually the first church that Paul started. He had many churches that he started throughout his ministry, uh, but Philippi was the first one. 
And many scholars actually believe that uh, the letter to the Philippians is not one letter, but actually a combination of many different letters that Paul wrote. And so we have this proof here that, that Paul really loved this church and had a special place in his heart for them because he wrote all of these different letters to them. And, and Melissa and I want to, to give these words to you um, as, as our parting words, these letters, uh, these words from Paul. I thank my God every time I remember you. Constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing of the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer that your love may overflow more and more with the knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let us pray. God, I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you for Acts 2. Thank you for a community of people who have committed themselves to helping non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. And God, I pray that you would send down your Holy Spirit upon them to empower them to do that better each and every day. God, that they would continually be the church. That they would be the body of Christ as they have been for Melissa and I and our family for the last five years. God, I pray that you would give them supernatural power. God, we thank you for the gift of the church. And we thank you that when we don't know the words to pray, that you have given us those words by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.